Welcome to the Pokes Podcast. I'm Jacob Longin, Coordinator of Communications and Marketing for the College of Arts and Sciences at Oklahoma State University. During the recent opioid trial in Oklahoma, CNN turned to the Department of History's Dr. Holly Caribou for expert analysis. Her research focuses on the history of vice, labor, and sexuality, as well as North American borderlands. She joins us to talk about the history of drug use and policy in America, as well as immigration policy and practice. Her expertise is a past, but her insight is incredibly relevant to present debates. So I know I have seen a lot of media attention you've gotten recently because of the Oklahoma opioid Mm -hmm. case. Yeah, you know, sort of my involvement, or I guess my interest in it, um, really came out of some of the research that I do that looks at the longer history of drug treatment and drug laws and so on. But it's been interesting, you know, being here in Oklahoma at the time where this case has become sort of front of the national discussions. It's really highlighted what's been a couple decades in the making in terms of, um, I think, what we now is so commonly referred to as the opioid crisis, um, which we can take issue with maybe the terminology or how to how to define that. But the important thing about the the national attention, I think, in cases like the the Oklahoma case, is that we're actually seeing steps legislatively at the federal level as well as at the state level now through litigation to try to do something to to stem the practices of at least drug companies at this point, um, and to get people treatment options and I think information and sort of destigmatize the issue of addiction, which has been, I think, for years has made it difficult to discuss, you know, and take seriously the issue, whether that's changes in laws or changes in treatment. So Oklahoma, the case itself, I think, has been really important, but this recent ruling was really important because it was uh, actually uh, a ruling in favor of Mm -hmm. the state. It was really unclear which direction it was going to go. And so given that there's, you know, hundreds of other pending cases, this has really um, given some hope to the people that are are wanting to see the drug companies, the families that run them, like the Sackler family, Mm -hmm. um, held accountable for this. I also think, you know, just being at Oklahoma State, the Purdue settlement that happened before, you know, mm-hmm. when they, they settled out of court, uh, and so they, which maybe for them was a good thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, given the end verdict. But that, you know, the, a lot of that settlement money is going to Oklahoma State University for their uh, treatment center in Tulsa. So that, you know, I think that this helps get some of that money into communities that need it most and into researchers' hands to figure out future uh, treatment plans and approaches. So there's there's a lot of really important parts to this, I think, that came out of Oklahoma that's mm-hmm. really put it on the map nationally. I know historians like yourself always are putting things in context <laughs> for us, which is very helpful. You just a minute ago pointed out the word crisis, which is how yeah. we, we always refer to it right now. But you have made the point, this is not the first drug crisis we've had. Right. Um, so what what is it about the word crisis you don't like? Is it because, well, there's kind of always one going on? So the, the idea of a crisis can also be conflated in other circumstances with something we might refer to as a moral panic, which mm. is where the numbers don't actually match mm-hmm. the rhetoric of what's happening. And so the amount of energy that we put into fighting a problem that may not actually be mm-hmm. the problem in the way that we were talking about it. Like the satanic panic in the 80s. Okay, that's a great, yeah, that's a great example. You know, and, and we see this sort of over time, whether it's a juvenile delinquency panic mm-hmm. in the 50s or if it's a, and drugs have been at the center of this. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, you know, crack cocaine was certainly a, a major national problem, but also the way in which we were talking about crack cocaine didn't necessarily enable us to to deal with the problem in an effective mm-hmm. manner, which was largely through incarceration at that point. The, my hesitation with, with crisis is um, that we have to be careful, crisis, epidemic, right? There's these sort of mm-hmm. words that get that put on also social problems mm-hmm. and, and challenges that I think 
have to be careful about where we're coming up with the terminology and what purpose it's actually serving. Mm -hmm. Is it actually serving a useful purpose to get attention for the cause, um, or is it sort of fanning the, the panic side of it, mm -hmm. um, which sometimes results in detrimental impacts mm -hmm. for the people that are involved? There was a time they made the movie Reefer Madness, and right. now you've got state after state legalizing, or at least uh, decriminalizing, or yes. making medical marijuana right. legal. Yeah, Harry Anslinger, uh, the architect of essentially the first major war on drugs starting mm. in the 1930s, would be probably rolling in his grave right now <laughs> if he saw the state. But he was very much um, in the 1930s put together this campaign against marijuana, um, which they largely linked to Mexican Americans, mm. the immigration question, all of these uh, different debates. And so this this idea of you know these young kids using marijuana and becoming um, addicted and then murdering people and turning mm. not to no spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the movie it's not not a happy <laughs> ending these are these are the conversations we have to have so it's not to say there isn't a serious problem the question is how do we have public debates about them that actually channel our energies in positive directions rather than fuel misinformation or maybe sort of hamper some of the our efforts at trying to actually address the real mm. problem so when you talk about different drugs that have been panics mm -hmm. over time it does seem like with my very simple understanding of history, like it is always, there's always some new drug that's right. come out and we're mm -hmm. freaking out about. There'll be another one after this, right? Yeah. There always is. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and if you go just, if we think sort of historically and go back to um, the first uh, major panic in North America, at least I would say, um, in modern US history, started really in the late 1890s. Mm. Um, and this was over the precise concern that uh, people were becoming addicted to um, medi uh, basically medicinal drugs. Mm. But at this time, you could buy heroin, laudanum, mm -hmm. all sorts of drugs. None of this was regulated. The, you know, it was in your cough syrup. It was in the gumdrops you gave your children to stop them from teething. Cocaine was a regularly prescribed drug. Sigmund Freud's famous for touting the, the wonders of cocaine for energy, for mental <laughs> fitness. So, you know, this was... Well, it um, does bring energy. Well, <laughs> again, <laughs> you know, and all of these drugs have uses, right? Mm -hmm. So the question was, um, you know, before then you didn't know the dosage, you didn't know who was taking them. You know, interestingly, historians have studied this really uncovered the, the most common um, addict of the late 1890s, early uh, sort of turn of the century, 20th century, I guess I mm. should say, um, you know, was really... Uh, middle-aged, white-class to upper-class women mm. living in the South mm -hmm. tended to be actually the, the sort of target audience, partly because they were prescribed medication for things like neurasthenia or, uh, you know, diseases of the nerves or mm. basically what we would see as anxiety or depression or whatever it might be. So there's all sorts of complicated reasons, but the point is that, uh, you know, the, the public panic over it came in part from this fear that doctors were introducing people to these drugs, that no one was regulating them and that there was a growing sort of underground black market, mm. uh, which was linked to things like opium, Chinese immigrants. Right. right. So these sort of work in, in tandem. So that was really the first wave that started the, the push for state, but then eventually the first federal uh, drug laws. Yeah, and that sounds like so many Westerns that I've seen. There's the opium dens right. and there's, yep. the, well, in Tombstone, you have the uh, White Earp's wife is always drinking laudanum. Right. Certainly it was, part of, you know, to some degree, part of the culture. Um, and again, I think that there was in the legislation was an effort to, to do something about that. Of course, it's all complicated how mm. legislation comes about, <laughs> who supports it for what reasons, and how the medical community gets involved. And, you know, they don't want to lose their power control over this, nor, nor do the, 
pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. So this was a, a major battle to get the first law in 1914 passed, the Harrison Act. Um, but there were also unintended consequences in ways that they didn't foresee that you know were, were part of it. So it's not that it wasn't a problem at the time or that it wasn't part of the culture, but the, what did the legislation do? It created sort of a whole new wave of challenges. The Harrison Act in 1914, I've not heard of that. Okay. What is that? So that was actually the first piece of federal legislation that created um, the ability of the state to regulate mm. um, all sorts of substances from heroin to cocaine, um, anything that was considered sort of a narcotic. Mm. Um, interesting, marijuana wasn't covered in that at this time. And it didn't actually outlaw the substances, but what it did was made it a crime to possess them. Uh -huh. So if you didn't have a prescription, you were now in pos illegal possession. Mm. So basically it created illegal uh, an illegal drug market. Mm. Um, so the, the results of this, in fact, is uh, one, people started going to doctors and paying them for scripts so they mm. could get you know, the substances that they, some were addicted to or some were trying to get, uh, you know, their hands on and for whatever reason. But it also creates an underground market, of course, mm -hmm. right? So you make it very, very difficult to get. Well, if people want it, turns out people find ways to make money off mm. of that. So what we'll see by the 1920s is a growing percentage of people in prisons for drug-related mm. charges. And so it's a direct sort of impact on the penal system, um, on users themselves. They didn't create treatment centers when they created these laws, um, and they were very few and far between. So it, it opened up a whole sort of door of challenges. Mm. And of course, 1914 is right before the passage of the 1919 Prohibition Act, mm -hmm. and these are going to work together and, and dovetail to grow the prison populations. Uh, quite dramatically. And I think most of us know enough about prohibition to mm -hmm. know, well, they passed it, it didn't work, they repealed <laughs> it. Is that an oversimplification? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is. Um, and in fact, there's historians that, that look at prohibition that say there are some things that actually did work. Mm. Per capita alcohol consumption within the population actually did go down mm. pretty significantly um, when compared to a couple generations before that. So if the goal was to prevent people from drinking or, you know, it didn't prevent it, but it did reduce the amount that people were consuming, which mm. was quite substantial in the late 19th century. But it, I think when people say it didn't work is that it also created all sorts of problems. They passed a law without actually giving it any teeth, so mm. they had to pass another law <laughs> to actually enforce it, right, and the Volstead Act. And uh, there were all sorts of loopholes. They didn't fund it, so th then they looked at state enforcement and said, you have to fund it, and they said, we you know, essentially, we don't have the, you know, the all, it just becomes mm. this. And then, of course, uh, entrepreneurs of all types find <laughs> ways to make tons of money, especially, you know, where I was from, the Detroit area. You're right next to Canada. Well, they weren't going to change their laws mm. just because the U.S. did. So perfect market right mm. there. So all these all these boats leaving for Cuba turn around <laughs> and head right back into, uh, you know, into the, the U.S. So I think it's an oversimplification, but... Um, I think the general narrative has been that it was unsuccessful mm. in, to the extent that it created more problems than it maybe solved. Mm. And I know uh, one of your big research areas is the Fort Worth Narcotic Farm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Something else I had not heard about. Uh -huh. what, can you give us kind of a quick version of what that is? Yeah. Well, the project started uh, my interest in it when I was I was teaching in Texas for a couple of years uh, near Fort Worth. So I ended up sort of in the archives. I knew there had been a drug treatment center there. Um, I just didn't expect to find as much as I did on mm -hmm. it. So it sort of turned into a, a larger book project. But uh, essentially, it was an institution that was open from the 1930s until the early 1970s that was one of two places federally funded where people could go to get drug treatment. 
what was interesting, it served about a thousand patients at its height at a time. What was interesting about it though is that part of the patients went there so-called voluntarily or were signed in or their family signed them mm -hmm. in or you know somehow they made it there. Uh, the, about the other half of them were sent there by the federal prison system mm -hmm. so they were mandated to these places. So they were both treatment centers and prisons in their own way and so it was a really interesting design kind of mid-century ideas about state and it was called the farm because you had to work mm -hmm. while you were there. So they all sorts of industries. The idea was that you know you, it's good for the soul. You sort of this nineteenth century belief yes. in fixing yourself through good work. Um, and so you know, and that you would learn a trade. And of course, I don't know how many people came out in the nineteen fifties as dairy farmers, for example. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you might learn on the farm, but uh, the idea was that separate you from the community that was causing the you know where you were having problems. Mm -hmm get you away from drugs, get you into therapy, but then also put you to work on the farm. Mm. And that this combination eventually, hopefully, could mean that you could be reintegrated back into society. So it sounds like the precursor to drug court now, except with more forced labor. Yeah, yeah forced labor. And I mean, you might be in there a year, a year and a half. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's a substantial time away from your family, your job, your, your, your life, um, which was part of the point. Unfortunately, in the records and from the reading of it, recidivism rates, or in other words, the rates of people who mm. went back to drugs were incredibly high. Mm -hmm. So the success rate of it was, was not actually um, anywhere near what they had hoped. To me, I'm interested, I think it's a really interesting uh, example of how the state was trying to fix a problem that it somehow created to some extent itself in yeah. terms of the prison system, um, but then, um, had serious challenges mm -hmm. in actually trying to figure out where to go from there. Um, Is that why it shut down? In part. Um, it was. There were also, by the early 1970s, a lot of changes that, mm -hmm. that were happening in terms of attitudes towards drugs. There was a much broader culture of drug use by the mm -hmm. late 1960s, mm -hmm. early 70s. There was also a push to get community-based treatment, mm -hmm. so move away from these big institutions, you know, the um, sort of anonymous uh, into a more community-based approach that, that would blend multiple types of therapies. Mm -hmm. So it's reflecting a change in part in the scientific community, in the culture of drug use. Um, also, frankly, a lot of sort of white middle-class kids are getting arrested by the early 1970s for things like marijuana charges. Mm -hmm. And those penalties are, are you know, the, becoming more worrisome of people like senators, mm -hmm. maybe, for example, whose kids themselves might be getting mixed up in these um, so, you know, I think there, it, part of it's a cultural change as well, uh, you know, there and a political change, mm -hmm. so. I know I've heard the argument um, when people talk about the opioid crisis, uh -huh. well, when it starts to affect white middle class, right. then it's a crisis. Right. Yeah, and you can't, I mean, when you study the history of drug policy, um, using communities, you know, this sort of combination, you can't take out the conversation around race because mm -hmm virtually every conversation about drugs throughout the 20th century, early 20th century, or 21st century now, has been deeply connected to who is using, mm -hmm. how are they using it, uh, are they considered sort of marginal peoples, are they wealthy peoples? Uh, you know, the very infamous case of this was the 100 to 1 ratio in the mm -hmm. 1980s, where, you know, it, it took 100 times as much powdered cocaine to get the same sentence as you know, as crack cocaine. Mm -hmm. And the inference was if you were rich and you were white and you were using these and you were playing Wall Street and you know, you were living this life, you're not gonna be touched by the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, people of color, downtown neighborhoods that were heavily policed by the 1980s as part of this, 
um, became the prime targets. And there we see the disparities in the prison system mm. come out of that. We see these waves mm -hmm. and we see the, the panics, we see the political response, we see the media response, uh, we, you know, and then it sort of eventually fizzles without necessarily fixing the challenges that users or addicts themselves uh, are facing. And so taking a longer approach brings that makes us more aware that this moment we're in isn't necessarily that unique. Mm -hmm. There are, everything is different, of course, there's always a unique aspect, but we can learn something from both our mistakes and maybe success stories from mm -hmm. past approaches. Let me ask you a fundamental question. Mm -hmm. What counts as a drug? I mean, that changes all the time, but how do we as a society decide where to draw that line? Yeah, it's another, I mean, it's another great question. Obviously, I mean, we could sort of take a medical or scientific approach in terms of uh, psychotropic responses, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to do that because <laughs> I'm a historian. Um, <laughs> I think for me, the bigger, the question that I'm interested in or the way that I would answer that or ask that maybe um, is what becomes a legal drug versus mm -hmm. an illegal drug? Mm -hmm. um, you know, why can we sit here with coffee as a stimulant and have, you know, no, uh, you know, no challenges around that? This conversation around vaping right now is mm. another really interesting one. Uh, are they going to outlaw vaping? Is that, can they, India, I believe I was just reading, uh, is moving to do that. You know, there's this conversation about flavored, mm -hmm. flavored vaping or whatever, <laughs> I guess you call it. When does this become a crisis? Again, mm. you know, the, think of the children. Mm -hmm. That's always usually <laughs> the first to start with. Um, and not, again, not that this isn't important. We should talk about it as a health challenge. But what will that do? Uh, will that work? Will it create a new market? Have we thought through the steps that this would look like? What will, how legally will businesses push back? When does that become, why are cigarettes still sort of ubiquitous? Right. And now vaping suddenly is, is the evil. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think all of those, all of those come down to, I, I think there's cultural questions around what we've just learned to accept mm -hmm. um, as normal, whether it's beer commercials and our Super Bowls or, yeah. you know, there's just so ingrained in our culture. It's corporate interest and power, right? And, and who can, uh, fund the campaigns to keep particular substances legal or not. Uh, you know, I think there's all sorts of interests in that. So it's it's it depends and, and it's hard to untangle. But there's a, when I teach about this with my students, everyone says, well, obviously heroin's illegal. That makes sense, right? Like it's a taken <laughs> as a given. And, and there's this real definition of hard drugs versus soft drugs. Mm -hmm. And I want us to to think, but but how does that actually come about? And what does that mean? Sure, heroin's considered a, a hard drug, but it has medicinal purposes. Mm -hmm. Tobacco isn't used for medicinal, and it's considered a sort of daily. I mean, obviously, it's stigmatized now and much, much more than it used to be. Um, so I like to sort of challenge those simplistic, you know, we've got hard drugs, soft drugs, some are, help, you know, some are just, you know, you do cocaine and you're addicted, these mm. sort of ideas that it's interesting to me where, the, where they come from. And thinking historically helps us get at some of those questions mm. and how those have changed over time. You mentioned beer commercials. Uh, mm -hmm. I was thinking the other day, like, we know famously you can't have a tobacco commercial on TV which I don't really notice until I start seeing the vaping commercials on TV. Mm. And then it's like, oh, this is weird to see an ad that starts with, you know, nicotine is an addictive substance <laughs> on television. Yeah, with the disclaimer. <laughs> That's, it's so odd to have that. Uh, and I realize that vaping is not tobacco, but it's nicotine. Right. When I was back home <laughs> in Michigan, actually, it was going through an old, it was, I think it was like a... It was like, not men's magazine, but some sort of something from like the late 80s, early 90s. And it was just like every other page was a cigarette ad, <laughs> you know, in these. And you just forget how prominent that was. And now for us looking at it, so when, when someone studies that 100 years from now, that might seem so crazy, mm. the way that vaping feels weird to us. And yet it was just so part of, I mean, and then we're talking late 80s, maybe, mm -hmm. 1980s, that is. So 
it's interesting how those norms actually can change quite quickly. That's a pretty short amount of time that they made a change in the shift about smoking and attitudes toward it. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, regionally that varies, but. Yeah, it's not portrayed as cool anymore, like in movies and stuff. Right. It's not, oh, this, this guy's really cool. Look at him smoke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe on HBO, but, you know, at this point, the you know, early 2000s, they were still doing that with their characters. But even now, mm -hmm. it's a good indication you might be the villain if you like the cigarette <laughs> uh, in that. So, Well, you also study uh, borderland studies and immigration as mm -hmm. another research area for you. Um, of course, you're from a border area, being from Michigan. Mm -hmm. And how close to the border for you personally? So it probably took me about 30, 40 minutes to get to the Canadian border, mm. so and down in Detroit, Windsor. And you also went to college in Canada. I did, yeah. I, um, I decided that I would uh, get out of Michigan when mm. I graduated high school and thought I'd go to another country, and Canada was the closest. <laughs> so <laughs> it uh, was about four hours from home, so it was not real far, mm. but it in some ways was felt like a world away. For sure. <laughs> so obviously that's going to um, affect who you are as a person just to grow up in that area. Uh -huh. What is it about borderland studies and immigration that uh, drew your attention growing up there, I assume? Well, a little bit. It was actually, I was, when I, I moved to, uh, I went to University of Guelph, which is near Toronto. And when I moved there, I actually realized I knew nothing about Canada and mm. I grew up right next door. Um, and Much closer really, Canada than, say, Oklahoma. Yeah, oh, way yeah. closer, yeah. yeah. And that really, that surprised me because when I moved there, I was, I was shocked by how many Canadians knew so much about American politics mm. and pop culture and they, they were following what was happening. I couldn't tell you who was prime minister mm. if, I, if someone had asked me before I moved there. I couldn't tell you the currents. You know, it was literally when I was 17, 18, I didn't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. So I got interested in border studies in part because it, how, I was wondering, you know, how is it that I could have lived so close to another country and not had to think about it mm -hmm. or engage with Canada or think about that at all, other than, you know, field trips or Phantom of the Opera or, you know, camping. We crossed the border, but I didn't at that time really think very much about mm -hmm. it. Um, for me, my, the first book that I, I wrote came out of the only thing I really knew about Canada or Windsor in particular is that a bunch of Americans would go there to drink because you can drink it when you're 19, not 21. <laughs> so it was this party town for Canadian or American teenagers. And, you know, there's tons of casinos and all sorts of strip clubs and all these things that cater to that border community and, and to the American market. So that was really all I knew about it. And so when I moved there, I was sort of interested in where, did, where, where does this relationship mm. come from and how could I know so little? <laughs> so it sort of started there was mm. my interest. Your book has a reference to Sin City North. Uh -huh. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So it was... Um, yeah, it came from an article, I actually, when I started, I, I ended up staying and going to University of Toronto for my MA and PhD. Mm. And when I started thinking about what I wanted to write on for my uh, thesis mm. um, was 2006. That was the year Detroit was hosting the Super Bowl. Mm. And so all of these national, ESPN.com, all of these news outlets were publishing articles about all of the vice and sin that when you are when you go to visit Detroit for the Super Bowl, make sure you go to Canada <laughs> for all your bad Cuban cigars and all those things, right? And so I was just so intrigued by the Sin City North idea that they were they were pushing. I thought there's gotta be a history behind this, mm. you know, as a border community. And sure enough, mm. <laughs> there was. It appears that America treats its Canadian border much different than its Mexican border. For example, there's no wall. There's no talk about building a wall. Yeah. Why do we treat the two countries so differently? Yeah, it's, is it's that a, a question a, you it's can It's a hard answer. and an easy question. Um, 
It's well, actually, I, and I think there's there's a just a, a much longer history with U.S. Mexico border. Certainly, U.S. Canada border. I think there has sort of long been this effort to to build what they perceived as sort of diplomatic cross border ties. Mm. Both of them were perceived as sort of Anglo settler mm-hmm. countries, mm-hmm. Um, shared a language. Uh, perceived to share an identity mm. as part of uh, the sort of English and French heritage. So that, I think, has created some of those at least mythological sort of mm-hmm. connections because, in fact, they're very different and settling communities are from everywhere and all, on both sides of the U.S.-Canada border. Mm. Um, whereas with Mexico, uh, it's also you're dealing with um, in economic inequalities between mm-hmm. two countries that are more stark than with Canada. And so issues of labor and migration look, you know, differently to some degree um, on the U.S.-Mexico border. Certainly, there's a racialized element as mm-hmm. these discussions that you can't take out of, um, you know, even national debates today. We mm-hmm. see that very clearly, I think. And so, you know, there's there's certainly been this sort of perception Canada referred to as the world's friendliest border mm-hmm. is how they like to or have at least has become a catchphrase used. It looks very different from perceptions in the way and the descriptions of, of uh, the border in the Southwest. Mm. Again, I think some of these are in some ways mythologies as much as they are actual policies. Um, I will say though, post 9-11, there's been a real push to securitize and militarize the U.S.-Canada border as well. So, you know, you have drones, you have all of these high sort of high tech security measures that have been put in place. You now have to have your passport to cross the border. You know, those are all things that happen post 9-11. There's been a renewed interest in that border as well because we're actually seeing that security apparatus unfold very quickly mm-hmm. in a in a way that's been driven by technology as well. Um, so while we're not talking about a, a actual wall, uh, there is certainly an effort to create this what sometimes referred to as an invisible wall mm-hmm. or those barriers that um, make it harder to cross to make the the border, you know, the the word of security and mm-hmm. and so on has has been sort of applied now to that mm-hmm. uh, region as well. So it's changed the dynamic as you cross. It's made it. Um, certainly, uh, for people that cross on a daily basis, more of a hassle, and you know, there's there are repercussions for when you depend on that sort of fluidity of the border when it changes, mm. and patterns change, economic relationships change as well. Yeah, and I know one thing you look at is uh, immigration policies and the way that they change. Mm-hmm. I know in America, our our policies certainly have changed over time, and there yeah. are even different groups that have been for lack of a better term, viewed as good immigrants and bad immigrants, that mm-hmm. has changed. Yeah, I, in, it's, um, you know, I, I deal with this in some of my classes. Um, it's one of the, the topics, certainly I'm teaching a borderlands class right now, mm-hmm. so that's something we'll be about to get into. The question about um, who's considered a so-called desirable or undesirable mm-hmm. immigrant has been at the center of national politics really since the late 19th century at the very least. Before then, you don't have you know, really formalized immigration policies. Um, certainly there were debates over what communities were welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go back to whether it's the Irish in the 1830s or Germans, Catholics, Jewish immigrants, so this, these had already been centers of debate, absolutely. Um, but when you start to see it formalized in federal law is really by, you know, 1870s, 1880s. And that begins, and in, in, in this is, you know, a time in which when we think quintessentially about immigration, this is really that moment, the moment of the new immigrant, as they were called, because mm-hmm. they were coming from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe now, um, from Asia, from mm-hmm. Latin America, 
And so they look different. Um, they were coming from different places than previous immigrants. And this begins a whole national debate about, well, what is an American? Uh, who is eligible to become one? Mm. Who can assimilate? How does religion play into this? All of these big questions and fueled uh, concerns and heated political debates that turned into actual policy. Mm. So whether at this time then, you know, Italians, certainly, you know, as Polish immigrants, Russian Jews, all sorts of groups, and especially, of course, the Chinese, which mm. were actually the barred uh, by and large by 1882 from even immigrating mm. uh, to the country at all. So this begins this era of kind of what this sort of era of exclusion that's capped at 1924 when they drastically reduced the number of legal immigrants allowed into the country for decades. And that doesn't really change somewhat in the 50s, but it's not really till the 1965 that that changes, mm. open up new opportunities and ways for people to migrate so or immigrate. Since 1965, there's been uh, sort of new populations of people that have been part of that migration, which raise new questions. And certainly uh, migration from Latin America from that point on really becomes central in the debate about immigration. Immigration numbers, you know, who is eligible, uh, what does this mean, whether it was Cuban immigration and the fears about Spanish language in Florida, and mm. you know, all of these debates that emerged by the late 70s and 80s, um, you know, become really at the center of, uh, of those questions about citizenship, about belonging about us as a nation of immigrants versus a nation of laws is how it's sort of framed, which I think is erroneous, but <laughs> uh, but easy to say, right? It's easy to understand those concepts mm. as dualisms, even if I, I think they're not necessarily. When I worked at Arizona State, I worked with students who were, um, you know, and, and had a chance to meet some really amazing young students that were working with the Dreamers, mm -hmm. um, trying to get the Dream Act passed, um, to which now, of course, they're in limbo still. Mm -hmm. And that would have been, that was 2012 when I was there, and I just can't imagine still living, not knowing if you'll be deported, if you lose your family, your job, you know, and these were really bright college students who were just doing some of the most amazing work and inspiring, and to think that they're in that limbo. So, you know, I mean, there are real human consequences to these, um, I think, to these debates. You mentioned Chinese immigration. Mm -hmm. uh, my understanding is that the first actual anti-immigrant laws in America were about Asians, maybe Chinese mm -hmm. individuals, is that right? Yeah, um, some of the earliest, and in part it was because uh, Chinese immigrants came in sort of largest numbers in part because they um, were contracted to do things like work in railroads and mines and work out west. Railroad, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, right, some dangerous, lowest paid jobs, you know, and then uh, people didn't really think, oh, well then they're gonna become part of the American <laughs> nation, of course, like every other <laughs> Just leave nation. afterward? Right. Yeah. So, 1875, they pass a law uh, making it difficult for uh, uh, Chinese women to mm. immigrate in the page laws, basically saying that if you travel unaccompanied, you'll be labeled a prostitute and sent back. Wow. Essentially, they didn't want women to settle because if women settle and people have families and then you're mm -hmm. creating communities, right, instead of temporary workers. Um, that's part, sort of part of what was behind it. But by then there's a huge wave of activism. Organized labor was part of this, political mobilizations out west that um, essentially said, you know, they're working the jobs, they're pushing the wages down, you know, they can't become American, they're not like us, they're just, you know, they never really can be. And it was a really effective argument at a time when people were expressing these fears about a changing country. Mm. And by 1882, they're able to pass the Chinese Exclusion Act, which doesn't completely bar, but virtually bars uh, Chinese immigration. It would follow with Japanese uh, immigrants. Um, 
and a whole series of laws that would work to restrict who is allowed. Increasingly, you start to see this list grow of things mm -hmm. that would get you disbarred from the country. So if you're an idiot, an imbecile, a drunkard, um, you know, all sorts of terms were sort of applied and it just grows and grows until 1924, 1917, 1921, and then ultimately 1924. Mm -hmm. So it's at the different, you know, obviously World War One and the different periods flare up these debates and concerns. And uh, so much so it becomes an effective lobby that drastically changes our immigration system mm -hmm. by the 20s. And of course, we don't hear much today about uh, the dangers of immigration from uh, immigrants from Asia. That just is not part of the conversation, the general public conversation. It's all about people coming from Mexico or further south. Yeah, I think that that's become the, the national fixation. Um, I think, you know, if, especially in the West Coast, I think there is more, there is anxiety about shifting demographics. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you hear some of the, the sort of language, but uh, it has shifted pretty dramatically to focus largely on, um, on Latin American immigrants mm -hmm. and, and people coming through sort of borders, uh, land borders this time rather than water borders, which mm. has been part of the, the debate as well. It seems to me, it just is human nature to go, I want to be around people like me and people different than me are dangerous. I don't know how else to put it, um, which we see in America. I mean, it seems like you see that all the time everywhere. It might change what different than me means. Well, I, you know, I don't know, because I, in some ways, you know, the, the U.S. Is, is sort of a counterexample to that mm -hmm. a, a, among nations, which is people from broad ranges of backgrounds and countries and histories and religions, I would not say living together perfectly, but certainly working toward a, uh, creating some, uh, a nation out of the blending of those mm -hmm. backgrounds and the idea that that would enrich the, the country, um, right? Not, not devalue it. Um, now, certainly that has never been a commonly or always accepted term. There's been, you know, if we, you can go to the backlashes in the 1920s. This is also when you see the rise of the Ku Klux Klan again mm -hmm. and a massive reemergence of, so nativism in, in a lot of ways expresses anxieties that are you know, certainly about race, they're about economic change, they're about technological advances that seem like they're moving too quick. You know, see, it's, it's actually really interesting to me how language, um, there's some of the rhetoric and language gets repeated in mm -hmm. different eras. It's different, right? We're talking about automation maybe instead of the automobile, but in your, you can sort of exchange some of those fears that, that people have and, and that they get sort of put onto fears that someone else is causing this, right? Mm -hmm. That it's the worker that's coming over here taking my job that makes it too hard for me to work, right? It's not the company that's charging, you know, that's paying low wages. You know, it's where you choose to put, put that anxiety, I think is the interesting part that gets repeated in different moments in history. You have lived um, along both borders generally. I don't mm -hmm. know how, how close along the southern border, but people will talk about meeting people um, and the way it changes your view. When you get to know someone, they're not a statistic. They're not mm -hmm. some, th you know, that group over there. Do you see the attitudes are different along the borders than they are, you know, what we hear in the general national discussion? Yeah, I think I think very much so, and that's not to say you know in all cases. Yeah, but yeah, my yeah. experience is is that if you have experienced crossing a national border on a regular basis, if you're 
um, you know, your business or livelihood depends on goods or people or customers that are crossing on a regular mm. basis. If you enjoy the cultural benefits mm. of being around a community where, whether that's you're in Windsor and you want to go to a Red Wings game or, you know, you're in Arizona and you want to visit uh, Sonora and Nogales for a day, I think that that dramatically changes your your understanding of um, what borders mean. In some ways, they mean more to people that live near them, and yet they're not always seen as just those those barriers, and maybe they become more connecting points in some ways mm. uh, for people that engage. And obviously, again, this is a blanket statement. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, refer yeah. to everyone or every situation, but that, that's been my experience living in Arizona and Texas and then Ontario and Michigan. You have connections with, with the people in which you interact with on mm. a regular basis, and that changes and, and, and changes that dynamic as mm. well, I think. In Texas, they were asking Mexicans to move into Texas when Texas was a country. Isn't that right? They were trying to lure immigrants from Mexico to help populate the new country of Texas. So it's it's got an interesting history because it changes so in such a short amount of time mm -hmm. between New Spain to Mexico to Texas to U.S. and then to a war. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, but part of it was, yeah, it was drawing people, so it was the Mexican state drawing in um, Anglo-American settlers mm to help uh, create, uh, sort of populate the state, create a, a buffer between Comanche, Apache raids, which were part of the dynamic of that region, and to try to sort of build up a presence there. The uh, US uh, immigrants to Texas also brought slaves. Um, they brought a different type of economy and they thought they'd be trading openly with say, New Orleans and other places um, for that cotton and other things that slave labor uh, grew. And thus, this kind of begins to escalate the tensions between the Mexican state and Texas residents, you know, who also, when they moved as part of the Empresario projects that brought brought these settlers, you know, um, the idea was they would become Mexican citizen and they would become Catholic. Mm. Um, neither of which, ha and learn Spanish, sorry. Um, <laughs> all of which didn't happen actually in the vast majority of cases, which meant there were sort of Anglo immigrant enclaves in Mexico now and this, this tension would grow and then of course into the infamous uh, ultimate disruptions that happened. So it's been a, a place between French and Spanish and English and uh, multiple sort of native communities that have occupied this this territory that the national border in the mid 19th century moves across multiple times. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really kind of a fascinating study of what that means, you know, when sort of the border crosses you and suddenly, right. you know, after the Mexican-American War and Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, now all of a sudden there's Mexicans that are now living in the United States, not because they moved, but because the border moved. Mm. And what does that mean? And you know, it's a really, to me, those are sort of interesting stories and, and questions about what does citizenship mean? And what does, um, you know, sort of national affiliation mean versus sort of your cultural identity and all of, all of those debates that, that unfold. What historically has been an effective drug policy if your goal was to uh, decrease the negative effects of drugs on society? It's an ongoing struggle. Mm. Um, one, I think, to understand addiction as a sort of multi-pronged issue. Mm. Um, to understand its sort of medical as well as psychological, social elements, I think, has taken a long time. Um, and it's continually evolving. So part of that is research, I think, and, and understanding um, how that's changed over time, how it depends on drugs that people are using how your drug use is impacted by what's going on in your life or all sorts of circumstances. I think one of the, the positive signs that I see potentially, depending on where it goes, is that there is, you know, and, and I think historians have been at the front lines of some of this work, is really trying to uncover the extent to which incarceration as a solution isn't 
actually solving anything related to drug use, the numbers, addiction. Hmm. And so there, I think that some of the, these policy moves that we're seeing, and you know, we can debate a particular policy or you know, does it do enough? Is it you know, skewed in, in the right way? Is it broken down in the right way? Uh, but I think that the move towards recognizing that there has to be a multi-pronged approach mm. to the issue of um, things like drug use and addiction is an important and positive move. I think destigmatizing um, addiction is an important move um, that because if you can if you don't consider them just sort of marginal people that don't exist or aren't really in your life or don't affect you, it's much easier to not really care mm. or not really um, see much change or or advocate for people who may need help. Um, so I do think that this this move to talk about addiction, to recognize it as something in all of our families, you know, mm. affects all of our lives and to some extent or one way, at least helps humanize the problem um, in a way that I think is important, that it's not it's not the sort of evil villain versus, the, you know, the innocent person that falls prey to this. It's mm. so much more complex, and I think that that's important. And that policymakers should be investing in those in the research and understanding mm. that and reading, you know, of course, the work of historians, but <laughs> other scholars who, you know, who write on what have been the effects. We know the effects of certain types of policies. So why re-implement them? And, uh, you know, and we're seeing a little bit of that. I think the, the work that's been done on the history of mass incarceration is actually having tangible impacts today, which is in policy, which is really in great and interesting to see because oftentimes ideas that uh, you know maybe are formulated in the academy or you know in think tanks don't always make it to the light of day to affect actual change so I think that that's a positive direction finally there's no easy answer and that we can't be looking for one I think is part of the problem right nothing's gonna fix nothing in particular is going to fix fix the problem hmm. and as somebody who uh, broadly you study immigration and mm -hmm. drugs when you have things like what is happening in America over the last, I don't know, decade with decriminalization of marijuana and medical marijuana and all this, is it fun for you to go, ooh, I get a whole new thing to study here. I get to see what happens when this happens and when this happens. Because they're, they're like, to me, they seem like case studies. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I haven't, you know... The typical historian in me, I haven't studied the most recent case study project. Because it's too recent. A little bit. Um, it's a little bit out of sort of my methodology and mm. how I work right now. I mean, for me, working in uh, my project book project right now goes to the 1970s, and that's mm -hmm. considered fairly recent So, <laughs> from a historical perspective. Yes. So it's, you know, I don't necessarily work directly with, say, recreational marijuana, mm. but at least in my own research directly. But I certainly follow the research that's being done, and I, and I find it, I mean, they're hard because they're not... It, it is, it's exciting and interesting, but they're tough topics. So it's, um, it's, it's always with mixed feeling. It's interesting to see when something happens that looks like it's, it's sort of forming a new direction or might have a positive impact, or of course then there's also the flip side that you watch unfold too. And mm -hmm. I think that whether that's immigration or um, drug policy or uh, drug laws, it is very interesting. I think it also makes the case for why understanding that longer history is is really important that these aren't happening in a vacuum and that people have studied you know the impacts of these different aspects uh, related to you know in my case um, borders or immigration or drug laws but that this yeah I guess just makes a case for why we should invest in those sort of longer understandings of the the, the questions I love history 
I'm mm -hmm. not a historian, but I just am fascinated by the subject. I have two children, and it drives me insane when they say, history is boring. And yeah. I said, well, then you're not being taught right. history well. Yeah. H how do you feel about that? Because I say yeah. <laughs> good history, along with everything you're talking about, good history is stories. Yeah. I love stories. I'm a storyteller. Yeah. If you're not hearing good stories and you're not hearing these large, um, these trends over time that, that affect you and lead to where you are today, and that's everything we're talking about now with drugs and immigration. Yeah. I, you know, I so I, I teach courses that are up to 370 freshman intro to U.S. history mm. courses. So that's usually day one. The general tone of the room <laughs> is, uh, I have to be here. I had to take this. I hated it in high school, and then I hate it again. And maybe some of them do. <laughs> that's okay. But, you know, I'm, we all have our things. But my goal is to sort of, if I can get people leaving that class, just a little bit interested in understanding why that was important mm -hmm. besides just the skills and things that you do in the writing which is all really important but yeah i think if you can understand these are stories about our community past they're stories about our personal histories and family histories about yeah i just i've never i think i've it's it's hard for me to envision not finding history so i always <laughs> have to reach them in that you have to think of it through you know this isn't i think so many come to it with Okay, well, tell me what I need to know. Give me a PowerPoint. Um, let me take a multiple choice quiz, and, and I'll get through this. And I really try to break that pattern because it's, um, to me, it's really the thinking, the analysis, the um, thinking about multiple ways things could have happened that are interesting and intriguing. I mean, you know, you talked about the, the stories of mm. it that are just endlessly fascinating. And if you can break out of that sort of, you got to know this date and then this date and then this date, and you kind of understand why big things matter. Mm -hmm. I mean, just as an example, I, when I first moved into Stillwater, I was renting a house near campus and I was walking on the sidewalk. There was a WPA 1939 mm -hmm. stamp on the uh, cement and I thought, you know, I'm so glad I know what that means because then I realized what it meant was that there were workers hired under the New Deal to mm -hmm. come to Stillwater to make this sidewalk that I'm still walking on to go to work and go to campus. Um, and that this was all part of a whole wave of trying to um, you know, make new jobs and think about the economy differently and sort of deal with the crisis of the depression and all of this was happening. And it was happening literally right on the sidewalk, you know, where, you know, I'm now walking still. Mm -hmm. And so just to me, that's fascinating. And to have those sort of reference points and even something's, you know, as little as a stamp on a sidewalk mm -hmm. reminds you that's just sort of all around you still. And I think that that's really fascinating. Let me ask you a question out of left field. Do you, <laughs> do you have a favorite person from history that maybe people don't appreciate mm. as much as they should? I should really have an answer for this question, but I'm not sure if okay. I do. <laughs> it's, it's okay um, if you don't. It, it does seem like what you study is more broad. It's more societal instead of this person. Well, it's also part of it for me, the history, it's sort of the persons. So mm. um, rather than studying, you know, sort of the big names, the figures, the presidents, mm -hmm. the, you know, whoever. I mean, there are tons of people I admire all through, through all sorts of history. Um, you know, I teach women and gender history as mm. well. I think there are so many just amazing stories that we are finally reading about because historians are starting to focus on that mm -hmm. and considering that important serious history. Um, but for me, I actually really enjoy the sort of, I love studying the histories of people that just sort of disappear in, in the books, that the sort of what we call the sort of social history mm -hmm. of communities, of individuals that we, I may only have a letter from in mm -hmm. an archive, and I may never find out another thing about that person. 
but they tell me something about um, a community or an event or an issue. And piecing those together, I think, is actually really exciting. Mm. When I was working on my book, there were definitely some women who worked as um, madams and prostitutes mm. that were really interesting to try to piece their stories together and figure out sort of which brothels they were working in. And they'd come from Montreal and all these stories, and they had some fascinating backgrounds. Uh, there's one autobiography that I work on a little bit that came out of that. So, you know, I, I think for me it's more, it's less the sort of, there's this, you know, I love, you know, Franklin Roosevelt or Teddy Roosevelt or whoever, and I'm more interested in the sort of everyday people that mm. make up, that we all sort of fade eventually into the stories that, that make up that history. But if we can find pieces of it, I think it's really interesting. As a scholar, what is it like to study these things that people view negatively, like drug smuggling and prostitution and things like that? Yeah. Well, so on the one hand, they view them negatively, and yet they're wildly popular and people want to <laughs> read about them. So, you know, there's this, you know, there's a contradiction between mm -hmm. what we say is bad and what we say we don't like, yeah. because those are not the same thing all the time, right? So they talk about the difference between being illegal and being illicit, mm. uh, you know, that it may, be, may not be illegal, but it might be, they, people might also socially accept it, even if it is sort of um, not technically allowed. So that I, I like studying those contradictions and mm. in-betweens. You know, in some ways, it actually, as a historian, going through archives and going through records, and in some ways, it actually helps that they're often illegal mm. activities because the state keeps a lot of records of those <laughs> things. So in some ways, you're almost inundated with, you know, just and and especially now when things are digitized, not everything, but you know, increasingly, it can actually be overwhelming. So I have, I have a very opposite experience from, say, my colonial historian friends who, if you know, they can find some records on something. Now sometimes it's you have too many records from, say, 20th century. But I feel like people are as much as they're considered sort of bad. It, it draws people in. People want to ask those questions. They they love reading those stories. You know, a lot of sort of. I guess pulp history, to put it mm -hmm. uh, in one way, you know, is very much about the speakeasies and the pubs and the places and the, you know, the, the dark spaces people met and the, the underbelly mm -hmm. might be another term. So I like sort of studying uh, some of those because they also raise questions about morality, mm -hmm. um, about the law, about, you know, all of the ambiguities that we actually live, I think, you know, beyond the image we portray. If we've studied our society simply by the norms and the codes and the laws, we wouldn't know anything about what people really do. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm really interested in, that gap between sort of the representation that we might think and then what we actually find. Mm -hmm. The reality for people looks looks quite different. So plus it's kind of they're just fun topics to some extent. <laughs> I'd like to thank Holly for joining us. If you'd like to contact us, you can email pokespodcasts at okstate.edu. Remember, there's no T in Pokes Podcasts. And now, as always, we finish by asking our guest how the arts and sciences are making the world a better place. Well, uh, to me, um, one, at Oklahoma State, I think it's... I love, uh, from my perspective, I've loved working with students in, you know, in history, in particular, the humanities. I love watching people, or students in particular, but having conversations about you know, difficult topics and then watching people sort of realize the connection between them and the subject they're studying or the, the sort of the world around them that seems maybe like it's so disconnected and yet starting to realize that when you start thinking of new ways to ask questions, new types of, you know, resources you can use, you know, new debates you can have with people around you, I think that that's really exciting. And so for me, the humanities is kind of in some ways about training your brain to, to think in different ways, um, you know, and, and sort of be able to to challenge yourself that way. So, you know, I think it's something that I hope people take out of the classroom, that they, you know, carry with them, that it shapes who they are. I know, because it certainly did that for me. 
and it sort of opened up a whole world of um, questions and, and places I didn't think I'd end up like Oklahoma. Or <laughs> to me, it's an exciting, they're, they're exciting fields, and I like that, especially in the humanities, you know, the sort of effort to work across disciplines and to think about how to um, connect those larger questions has been uh, one of the more rewarding aspects. Mm -hmm.